Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Justine Hill Edwards about her book, Unfree Markets, The Slaves' Economy and the Rise of Capitalism in South Carolina, published by Columbia University Press in 2021. Dr. Hill Edwards is an assistant professor of history at the University of Virginia. Unfree Markets focuses in on an area of slavery's history that has seldom been explored, the economic lives of enslaved people, and its meaning for them, enslavers, non-enslavers, and the institution of slavery itself. Dr. Hill Edwards explores how the complicated history of the slave's economy from the colonial period to the Civil War, showing the relationship between it and the development of capitalism in the nation. Through a history of enterprise, cultivation, markets, and people, Dr. Hill Edwards shows just how much the tenuous connection between economic activity and freedom for the enslaved became throughout this time period, and what that meant for everyone involved. Dr. Hill Edwards, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So I guess to get things started, can you tell our listeners how you came to this topic, um, why you decided to study it? Sure. Well, this topic has been many years in the making. It was the focus of my PhD research, and it's a topic that I didn't realize I had been really thinking about or grappling with for much longer than I had been actually working on it. Um, So I started a master's degree in what was then called African New World Studies, essentially African Diaspora Studies, at Florida International University, and I really wanted to understand Um, just more about African-American and African diaspora studies. Uh, One of the first graduate seminars that I took was Slavery in British Colonial America. And one of the first books that we read was Jennifer Morgan's Laboring Women. And so in that book, she talks about a whole host of interesting topics. But the topic that I really narrowed in on in her analysis was about market women in specifically Bridgetown, Barbados and Charleston, South Carolina during the 18th century. And she talks about how these enslaved women wielded power in the marketplace and these 
port cities, and I was just fascinated. I was stunned. I wanted to know more about how Black women who were enslaved could establish their presence in these marketplaces and really how they wielded a certain amount of economic power in these marketplaces. Um, and so from there, I, I really kind of started reading the literature, reading the sources, and really getting a sense of um, how the slaves economy more broadly really evolved in the Atlantic world. Um, and so I, I, I took that interest and I transitioned into a PhD program at Princeton where I focused more on this question of, well, if enslaved people could engage in these types of economic activities, if they could earn wages, if they could work on their own, if they could buy goods and sell goods, then did this mean that they could then work enough and earn enough to buy their own freedom? And so I was thinking about this quite a bit. And as I decided to focus more on South Carolina, um, the I, I was finding out that the answer to that question was really no. Um, unfortunately, despite the fact that the slaves economy had existed in South Carolina from the very beginning of its establishment as a colony, um, even though in many ways the kind of presence of enslaved men and women in marketplaces on on roads, buying and selling goods, and really in, engaging in commercial activity was everywhere. Um, there were so few instances of enslaved laborers being able to use that economic activity to buy what they ultimately wanted, which was freedom. And so, uh, and so I started to think more about then not just the economic lives of enslaved people, but really how those types of activities really dovetailed with the rise and the burgeoning of capitalism, especially slavery's capitalism. Um, and so it kind of brought me back to my childhood, brought me back to thinking about um, this interest that I had in money and wealth that I really didn't understand when I was a kid, but um, I've I've gained more clarity about it now. Um, and as I went through my re research, I constantly had so many questions about this assumption that I had, really a naive assumption that having money meant that one had power, especially within American society. And that was, again, my assumption as I started reading about market women and the enslaved economy more generally. But um, again, as I continued this research and as I continued to, um, to not find uh, ways to really answer my uh, questions in the literature, that's when I started to really make those connections between the enslaved economy and the rise of capitalism in South Carolina. And I think a lot of people would sort of share that same um, assumption that, you know, even for enslaved people, the more money that you can, you know, sort of gain over a certain period of time over your life, the, the better off that you'll be. Um, and for an enslaved person, you know, this might be, you know, enough to gain freedom, to have some sort of limited liberties or freedom or, or whatnot. And what you're showing here is, you know, while that might be the commonplace assumption, Unfortunately, it doesn't really match up to what history has to tell us. Exactly, exactly. And this I idea too that 
um, that yes, even though enslaved people had access to markets, had access to consumer goods, that it made their lives better. Yes, it, it, it certainly made their lives better materially, right? Being able to purchase shoes to shield one's feet or a hat to shield one's head or uh, better food um, or whiskey or rum to kind of dull the trauma of, of slavery. Yes, that may have made their lives better materially in the short term. But in many ways, um, enslaved laborers' investments in economic activities actually tied them even more firmly to the institution of slavery. And what it did, too, was it enriched their enslavers and the whites with whom they were trading. And so one of the things that you mentioned before is that um, this sort of enslaved economy existed from the very start of South Carolina as a colony. And so how did... Uh, the slave uh, slave economy developed from the colonial period on. Sure. Well, I I like to say that the the enslaved economy began in what was what would become South Carolina from the arrival of the first enslaved Africans um, in the latter half of the 17th century, and so Carolina as a colony was founded in 1670 by white Barbadians um, who were looking to invest the capital that they were accruing outside of Barbados because it was an island colony. And so the first generation of enslaved Africans and what would uh, become South Carolina really came from the West Indies and Barbados in particular. And the slaves economy and the role of market women in particular in Barbados was firmly established by the middle of the 17th century. And so um, and so as Carolina as a colony becomes established in the late 17th and early 18th centuries, so too does the, the economic activities and the economic networks of enslaved Africans. Um, they inherited these practices. They attempted to kind of forge and adapt these practices to the structures of slavery that were beginning to emerge in Carolina, in particular around rice cultivation and the task system. And so they attempted to kind of use their, their economic activities, not just to shield themselves from the traumas of slavery, but they be, began to use it as kind of a negotiation tactic between themselves and their enslavers. And so um, the colonial period is really interesting, right? And so if the in, enslaved economy really uh, kind of gains its foundation, is firmly established in Carolina and then South Carolina in the colonial period. Um, interestingly enough, we see that uh, Carolina was again established in 1670, but the first uh, law to not just recognize, but attempt to regulate uh, slaves' economic activities was in 1686. And within this set of statutes, the colonial assembly essentially says that um, that there are all of these kind of e illegal economic interactions between enslaved Africans and white colonists and indentured servants. And these activities were kind of threatening the uh, class status of inhabitants of the, the colony. And so they create this law um, saying that uh, illicit trading between enslaved people 
white colonists and indentured servants were were essentially illegal. But if enslaved people had the permission of their enslavers, then these activities could continue, right? And so this is really interesting for a few reasons. One, because it established fairly early on in South Carolina's history as a slaveholding colony than state, that enslavers had ultimate control, not just over their enslaved property, but over the economic activities of their enslaved laborers, right? That's one thing. And two, what it means is that um, the colonial assembly is essentially putting on record the fact that they recognize the uh, presence of these activities, and they don't try to completely eradicate it. What they try to do is regulate it. And so it is at this period, I, I believe, that it establishes firmly the role of the enslaved economy within the culture and economy of slavery in South Carolina. And it um, kind of establishes it as such a central feature of life in this slaveholding region of British colonial America. Yeah, and I find that so interesting because, you know, on a sort of basic level, we can imagine that if something, if you, if there's something going on that you don't like, you would obviously try and outlaw it. Um, mm-hmm. If there's something that you like, you will allow it to go on. And if there's something that you see as beneficial, um, but that might be sort of, you know, as you said, need regulation, then you pass regulation. And it shows that for this period, as you are showing um, through this history, that this economy that enslaved people are producing and creating is essential to the very development of this colony. Exactly, exactly. It's essential to the development of the colony. It becomes part and parcel of what it means to be an enslaver, what it means to be enslaved in this colony as well. And so in many ways, we can't... um, we, we can't separate our understanding of the, the economy of slavery from the ways in which the enslaved economy continues to develop and evolve in this period as, as well. And look, looking at law, I think is really fascinating. It's one of the, um, it's, it's one of the aspects of the book that I'm, I think I'm most, I'm, I'm proudest of, or I think is most fascinating because in many ways it's forced me to confront the kind of legal history of slavery. And I think new ways, um, think, thinking about, of course, slave law as written and slave laws practices, I think an important intellectual tool that historians of slavery in particular can use to understand the lives and experiences of enslaved people. But, but I also think it's a way to understand kind of the, the, the highest ideals of not just in enslavers but lawmakers and so to see this kind of clause or loophole as i like to say in this early colonial statute tells me that okay the the enslaved economy and the economic activities of enslaved africans was seen as being threatening enough to um publicly recognize it in law, but not so threatening that um, that it needed to be eradicated entirely. And I think that that is a really important message that I tried to remember as I continued my analysis in the book. And so one of the things that you show going forward, um, particularly uh, throughout and after the American Revolution, is that the slave economy starts to sort of 
shift and expand as slave hiring in the late 18th century starts to expand in and of itself. And so for people who are unfamiliar with this history, what is slave hiring just on a sort of basic level? Um, And then how does this sort of shift uh, sort of change the slave economy itself going forward? Mm -hmm. Great question. Um, So slave hiring as a practice was not at all uncommon um, in uh, slave holding regions of the Atlantic world. And so in particular in South Carolina, slave hiring was a practice by which um, an enslaver would allow a, a tip, typically a white freeholder to rent an enslaved person for a couple days to up to a couple years. And it's a way for enslavers in particular to continue to reap the economic benefits of their investments in slavery and their enslaved property while not having to bear the financial burden of uh, of kind of caring for the, the enslaved person. And so slave hiring in particular was common amongst skilled in enslaved laborers, traditionally enslaved men who were skilled in the mechanical trades, skilled as bricklayers or as carpenters. And so, um, and so I, I, I use the tradition of slave hiring to think about this question of change, change over time. And I really like how you kind of posed your, your question because overall in the, the book, that's one of the goals is to look at the slaves economy as a practice, right. And look at it in terms of changing over time. How did it evolve and adapt to the changing landscape and economy of slavery. And I think slave hiring, especially after the revolutionary period, is this really interesting moment. And so, uh, and so at the end of the 18th and at the beginning of the 19th century, um, slave hiring became more prevalent as kind of the expansion in the, the, the economy of slavery kind of dovetailed with this expansion of slavery. And so interestingly, though, in this period, um, as this expansion of slave hiring, especially among skilled enslaved laborers occurred, there was a major pushback by white laborers who did, did not own slaves. And so kind of skilled whites who believed that enslaved laborers were essentially taking their jobs and positions and that um, this, this tradition was supported by not just wealthy lawmakers, but wealthy enslavers. And so, um, and so you, you see laboring and really working class whites begin to use this system of petitioning to send petitions to state lawmakers kind of complaining about the prevalence of skilled slaves taking their jobs and positions. And so groups of white mechanics and blacksmiths and bricklayers, for example, began really petitioning lawmakers. And this petitioning process would continue through the 19th century, um, saying that they were allowing skilled bondsmen to take their, their jobs. And so it is kind of an in- interesting conversation about kind of white class dynamics with um, the economic potential of skilled slaves at the center of this political conflict. Yeah, and as you say, that's something that goes throughout the 19th century up to the Civil War. And I've always found it uh, sort of really interesting because I think 
particularly for people who say have like a grade school understanding of slavery. Um, mm-hmm. I know myself growing up in the South and everything like that. Um, eventually you're sort of told like, okay, yeah, like most people in the South didn't own slavery and then they sort of just leave it there. And you're sort of just like, okay, I guess most people in the South didn't like slavery. And then you sort of, and then something like this is just like, okay, they didn't like slavery because like it, affected them economically not necessarily because they were against it um you know they wanted their jobs back in in a sense um according to them and their petitioning and stuff like this Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it, it is a really interesting meditation on this longer history of um white class conflict right and so um you you have skilled slaves in the middle where on the one hand, you you have kind of poor and work working class whites um, saying that, well, we are citizens of this state and we have political power. And on the the other hand, you have the wealthier elite saying, well, my privileges as an enslaver essentially su- supersedes your proclaimed citizenship rights and you have again skilled slaves in the the middle who are again just trying to earn wages to make their lives just a little bit better so it's an interesting conversation this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And one of the things that you look for, look at uh, going forward is this relationship between what you call, quote, the economy of slavery and, quote, the economies of the enslaved. And I'm a sucker for wordplay and everything. So I immediately grasped onto that. Um, but you illustrate, you know, how these two things are. There's an interplay between these two and how they are affected as South Carolina's um, crop and economic practices change at the turn of the century. And so what's going on there? Sure. No, I, I love a good wordplay as well. So I'm happy that you latched onto that. Um, Yeah. And so at the beginning of the 19th century with, well, really at the tail end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century, um, an evolution is occurring. Um, especially in the the economy of slavery, right? And so um, innovations made in cotton gin technology combined with this massive expansion of the bounds of the United States with the Louisiana Purchase combined with the um, closing, with congressional closing of the of American participation in the foreign slave trade in 1808 and the launching of the domestic slave trade brings together um, a series of events that really affects the daily lives and the economic lives of enslaved people. And so I use Charles Ball in, in his narrative to illuminate this. And so Charles Ball is or was an enslaved man from Maryland 
and he gets um, stripped away from his family and community in Maryland and sold to slavery in South Carolina and Georgia. And so on his hundreds of miles trek from Maryland to South Carolina, he witnesses this change in the the environment, in the, the landscape. And so once he crosses over into South Carolina, he essentially writes that um, that there's just cotton fields for as for as far as the eye can uh, can see, and this is kind of startling to him. Um, and so he he then talks about how in South Carolina, kind of cotton just dominates his life and his experience. And he even says that he's noticing that the the enslaved men and, w- and women in South Carolina are poorer than those in Maryland, and that they spend just inordinately more time dedicated to work to earn wages, to waged work. And so he, he, uh, he says in Maryland, it was not uncommon on, on Sundays for men in particular to work for wages to buy their, their wives a Sunday hat or Sunday dress. But in South Carolina, he witnesses that enslaved people are working not just for their Sunday clothes, but for essential kind of basics, right? For clothing that does not shred into tatters, to shoes to cover their their feet in in wet and rainy weather, um, to kind of lard to cook food and so essentials and basics. And so he's witnessing in in his na- a narrative, which is sub- subsequently published in 1837, once he escapes to freedom. Um, he essentially says that slavery in South Carolina is unlike anything that he had experienced in Maryland. And he has these vignettes of witnessing in enslaved people just working them themselves to the the bone for pennies just to provide uh, kind of meager goods for them themselves and their families. And so in many ways, the kind of the the evolution of the the economy of slavery and the introduction of um, of short staple cotton to the economy of slavery really did transform the economic lives of enslaved people, meaning that they were working more and more and more just to, um, just to keep themselves from starvation and keep themselves in just a modicum of comfort. Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they when they think of slavery, they think of cotton, obviously. Um, but they sort of, I think, usually, you know, think of the backbreaking work, how much they have to work and everything like that. And, you know, there is sort of a nuance in the work enslaved people had to do throughout the South and what that looked like, um, which isn't to say that like, you know, slavery in the upper South in in Maryland or Virginia was easier or better or anything like that. But I think the sort of interplay that you're showing here between in just one person's sort of narrative of what they can sort of experience between Maryland and South Carolina and this sort of shift to cotton and how sort of, monumental this is for the deep south and what enslaved people have to do and then how this um factors into their economic lives is really important sure sure i mean it's it's dramatic i mean south carolina at the beginning of the 19th century transitions from a colony and then state that's dominated by rice in the low country to one that is balanced out and then were taken by by cotton and that shifts 
the ways in which slavery evolved. It, 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 it shifts the ways in which enslaved people experienced slavery. But um, for my purposes, it, it, it shifts the ways in which the, the economic lives of slave people, um, how it continued to, to adapt and change. And so interestingly enough, um, and talk about in chapter five, uh, another enslaved man who uh, seeks freedom late, later on in his life, um, John and Andrew Jackson. And he talks about how um, one of his enslavers would in, encourage local enslaved people to bring stolen cotton to him. And so he, uh, this, this enslaver would encourage slaves to bring stolen cotton. And for every 100 pounds of cotton, he would give the slave a gallon of whiskey. And so he continues to do this. And of course, the 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 enslaved people are being com, uh, completely uh, built by this enslaver, right? He's making money hand over fist by this, sto- this stolen cotton in exchange for a, a, a relatively small amount of whiskey. And so he, he says at the, the end of this, this part of his narrative, he says, and this is how the enslavers in South Carolina be become rich and wealthy. <laughs> and so, and so even an enslaved person, another enslaved person is recognizing that the wealth of South Carolina's planters and enslavers are being built off of not just the regular work, but the extra work of enslaved people. It's, it's astounding. And I think that's, you know, really sums up like what is so important about this enslaved economy is that, you know, it is extra work. It's not things that people are doing, you know, in their free time and stuff like that necessarily. Like this is like extra work on top of a life that is dominated by the exploitation of a person's labor. Exactly. Exactly. And it's it's some something that kind of. I constantly think about just the backbreaking labor that enslaved people com- uh, completed and the the fact that they were just uh, kind of figuring out how to squeeze just a small amount of time each day to and to put towards waged work and that that's why through throughout the book I do say work that they did for themselves because by default all the work that they were doing was to the economic benefit of their their enslavers right and so being being able to delineate the differences between work that enslaved people did for their enslavers versus work that they tried to squeeze out for themselves i think is really important to recognize in this period and looking forward into the 19th century, one of the things, uh, one of the events that you look at is the Denmark Vesey conspiracy. And you tie this conspiracy of um, 1822 to the enslaved economy and sort of tease out how these two things were related, how the enslaved economy plays an important role both in the conspiracy itself and its aftermath. And so for our listeners who are unfamiliar with what the, who Denmark Vesey was, what this conspiracy was, um, can you give sort of a brief overview of that and then explain to us how the enslaved economy plays such an important role in this? Sure. Well, the Denmark Vesey 
plot or conspiracy was a supposedly foiled slave rebellion in the summer of 1822. And so just just to go back a little bit, um, Denmark Vesey historians believe was uh, an enslaved boy named Telemach, and he was born in St. Thomas in the 1760s. He was subsequently purchased by a slave trader named Joseph Vesey. He was sold by Vesey to an enslaver in Saint-Domingue right before the outbreak of the rebellion in Saint-Domingue, the Haitian Revolution. He was later sold back to uh, to Vesey because apparently he was suffering from epileptic fits. Um, So Vesey carried uh, this young enslaved boy from Saint-Domingue to Charleston where they settled. Later on, in 1799, um, uh, Denmark Vesey uh, purchased a ticket in what was called the Bay Street Lottery in Charleston. It was about $6, and so we're not sure if he worked on the side to earn wages to buy the ticket or if he borrowed the money, but he ended up winning the lottery. And the major prize was $1,500. Now, what's astounding about this is that one, not just that he won, but his enslaver actually allowed him to keep the money and that it was legally certified that this transaction took place. Um, He subsequently negotiates with uh, Joseph Vasey and his wife to purchase his freedom for $600. And so he enters into the year 1800 as a newly inaugurated free person of color in Charleston. And so he works as a carpenter. He becomes involved in the burgeoning kind of black Methodist community in Charleston. And in the summer of 1822, he is supposedly embroiled or the, the head of this um, planned slave insurrection. It was subsequently foiled by two enslaved people who told their enslavers about it. But um, so there are kind of two parts to this. One more recently, well, in 2001, historian Michael Johnson kind of does this additional archival research and begins to question the veracity of the historical record here. Um, and so that's why I say the conspiracy, the plot, because it is a nod to this kind of new strain in the literature that is kind of questioning whether the Vasey plot was even a plot at all, or whether it was fomented by whites who were increasingly afraid of the autonomy and the economic power of free blacks in Charleston. But with with that being said, um, the the interesting part for me about this conspiracy was not that it may or may may not have have happened, but that in the kind of rhetoric of the um, white Charlestonians in particular, who were kind of really scared and talking about the fear of armed slaves and free blacks, that um, the enslaved economy was kind of used in this political way. Um, but de- despite the fact that there was all this fear and this outrage among white Charlestonians and white South Carolinians writ large, especially in the fall of 1822 and the win- winter of 1823, um, 
what happens is that the General Assembly starts to um, create new laws to further regulate the enslaved economy, saying that enslaved men and women who wanted to trade had to have a certain type of written permission from their enslavers. There were all of these petitions sent from white citizens around the, the state to the a general assembly kind of saying that they were afraid of of not just armed slaves but slaves with access to money but what happens in the aftermath is that even though there there is this real um concern expressed by white south carolinians nothing really happens um the enslaved economy again does not go go away the enslaved economy does not go underground if anything um the the status quo continues Continues to exist. And actually, in the period after the Vasey conspiracy, um, what I be, began seeing was that enslavers began to actually try to control the economic activities of their enslaved laborers more. And so in many ways, enslavers were at the helm of this conversation about, well, you know, we know that our slaves engage in these types of activities. We know that um, they want to earn money, but um, we are really not as concerned with the enslaved economy as we are about armed slaves. And so it's, it's, it's this very, very interesting moment that could have been a complete eradication of the, the enslaved economy and it doesn't happen. I think that's it's so interesting to to sort of see that playing out, um, because just as we sort of said with the colonial period, all it does is prove just how central the economic activity that enslaved people are taking part in creating um, is vital to this state. You know, you think about how their the exploitation of their labor for cotton and the production of cotton, the harvesting of cotton, the selling of cotton is so important for South Carolina, the South in general, and the nation as a whole. But it shows that in the face of, you know, as you were talking about, this conspiracy which rattles the state to its bones um, and can be the sort of final impetus to get rid of this economy uh, sort of writ large and pretty much people are just like no like we 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 kind of still need this even if they don't put it in those it sort of stark words exactly exactly and then if anything i think it proves that enslavers in particular understood this connection between slaves having money and slaves not having access to freedom Right. They they did did not see it as being um, as kind of one undermining the the other. They understood that, yes, you know, enslaved people could have a little bit of money here and there. But we ultimately know that they're never going to make enough to do what they really want to do, which is be free. And so let's just this 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 kind of slave economy can continue to exist. But in the 1820s and 30s, what happens is that they say, well, you know, it can continue to exist and we can find more ways to profit from it. (laughs) So, um, and so in many ways they become more um, forward thinking in, in a really pernicious way in terms of how to more fully incorporate the enslaved economy into their overall investments 
in slavery and slaveholding writ large. Going off of what you were just saying and sort of the larger um, discussion here um, that we've had about sort of the rise of cotton and everything going on there, um, as cotton sort of really kicks off in the uh, throughout the 19th century into the antebellum period and everything like that, how did the economic activity um, and relationship between enslavers and, ensla- and the enslaved change uh, with this big boom in cotton? Sure. Well, what I found and what I was actually really surprised to find was that enslavers, again, be become more um, forward thinking, I would say, in their ideas about how to profit even more from their investments in slavery. And so with the incorporation of accounting, Caitlin Rosenthal's book, Accounting for Slavery, is a wonderful book on this topic. Um, Enslavers begin to adopt kind of crude accounting techniques to not just support the the slaves trade, but they begin to actually account for their trade with slaves, meaning writing it down. And so um, accounting scholars in general have have claimed that the introduction of accounting practices really kind of brought into the modern world ideas of capitalism. And so they are connecting accounting to the kind of rise and growth of capitalism in many parts of the world. And so we see this in the the economic interactions between enslavers and the enslaved. And so interestingly enough, enslavers begin to kind of to track what slaves are buying, how much slaves earned by by picking more cotton than than their a daily quota. Enslavers would pay slaves for livestock such as pigs or chickens. Um, and so in particular, uh, kind of I think one of the clearest examples of this is um, from an enslaver named Charles Coatsworth Pinckney. And in 1837, he wrote in one of the premier agricultural journals in the U.S., the Southern Agriculturist, he writes about his slave management practices. And he writes that he was upset about the illegal trade between enslaved laborers and whites. And so he was afraid that his whites, his, his slaves were being taken advantage of by whites. And he writes that this can be remedied if enslavers will just kind of adopt the accounting practices that they use in their own accounts and with their, their interactions with cotton factors, for example. And so he essentially says, hey, enslavers, start accounting for your trade with slaves. It'll make your life better. It'll line your pockets and it'll make your slaves happy. And so on the surface, this seems like perhaps a better way than violence, perhaps to kind of for enslavers to extract as much labor from enslaved people as possible. But if we kind of look under the the surface, we find that this is just another tool of exploitation that enslavers use to try to coerce um, uh, enslaved men and women to be as productive as possible. Um, and so um, and so in the end, um, enslaved men and women have less autonomy to pick trading partners. And at the end of the, the day, they're enslavers. A man like 
Charles Coatsworth Pinckney continues again to profit from his investment um, in slavery at the you know expense of enslaved people. And I think what's interesting there is being able to sort of see um, as time is going on, the sort of gears turning in enslavers' minds as mm-hmm. they learn to not only sort of rely on this uh, enslaved economy, not only regulate it, but to, as you're speaking about here, um, learn to exploit it in its own right for their own benefit and um, introduce new ways of exploitation um, in the form of, in this case, accounting. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and it really was exploitation. And so again, um, uh, enslaved laborers were were just trying to make their lives a little bit better. And at the end of the the day, all of their all of their extra work may have allowed them to buy goods, right? To per, to participate as consumers in their local communities. But at the end of the the day, who was benefiting? They're enslavers. And one of the things that you mentioned early on um, when speaking about sort of the American Revolution and the changes in slave hiring practices was how white Southerners and you know, have this sort of um, sort of almost pseudo sort of class conscious warfare going on where what non-slave owning uh, white Southerners are getting more and more irritated with the fact that slaves are able to hire themselves out. And this continues on, as you show throughout the 19th century. And by the time that we are sort of leading up to the Civil War, you have this sort of um, culmination of all of these things that you've been talking about where enslavers are learning to exploit the, the enslaved economy even more. And this sort of affects non-slave owning whites to an even greater extent. And so how is this relationship sort of shifting over time to this point? And what does it look like on the eve of the Civil War? Sure. Well, on on the eve of the the war, especially in the 1850s, um, we we see middling and poor whites really kind of taking enslavers and the economic and political elite in South Carolina to task, saying that um, that we're consistently petitioning lawmakers to change these laws, right? Slaves are allowed to do all of these these things economically, and they are take, taking our jobs and employment opportunities, especially the, the skilled slaves. Um, they have these kind of goals of rising into the economic elite, but it would be very hard for that to happen practically. And so we see really in the late 1850s, there is this question about kind of what to do with these um, non-elite whites, white men in particular. And um, Stephanie McCurry has talked about this at the beginning of her book, Confederate Reckoning. But, um, and I do do agree there, there is this, this question, especially with secession kind of looming in the political air, whether um, non-slave holding whites would get on board with leaving the union because of their grim economic prospects. Um, and they are launching these attacks, these political attacks at um, at the the elite white capitalists in the society because at the end of the, the day, they are creating laws and economic policies that support 
themselves. And that includes continuing to allow for the practice of slave hiring that continues to allow for enslaved men and women to kind of seek out opportunities to trade when, when they, they could. Um, and so it's this really, really in, interesting moment that in min, many ways, perhaps the enslaved economy threatened to potentially upend white support for secession, which, um, which is kind of a fascinating way to look at this politically unstable period of time. Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting to see how the sort of that there isn't this sort of, you know, white blog in the South that is, you know, obviously like all pro secession, all of this. And, you know, we've we've sort of already sort of seen this in other works and everything like that. But it's really interesting to see how this plays with the enslaved economy and how much the sort of economic practices that enslaved people are um, taking part in creating and by this point very much sort of being forced into by their enslavers really threatens to upend and sort of turn back on the very people who are exploiting them mm-hmm. when it comes to, you know, this looming sort of threat of secession. Sure, sure. And I mean, this this is the quintessential conundrum of capitalism, right? Um, one in which the lower and lab- laboring classes kind of rise up against the political and economic elite. And so it it is an interesting lens through which to understand this this period, especially thinking about the um, the instability wrought by the economic activities of of enslaved people who again really have nothing like they they don't have political power they don't have economic power all they have is themselves and trying to eke, eke to eke out a measure of survival so um kind of all of the these things come to a head and interestingly enough you you have this this economy as well of trade be, between enslaved people and really poor whites. And so that's going on at the same time. They're kind of relying on one another for goods and trading activities. And so it's this kind of jumble of, of, of events that kind of leads us to 1860, especially when, when look through the, the lens of the slaves economy. And so um, before we let you go, once again, we have this amazing book in front of us, um, Unfree Markets, The Slaves Economy and the Rise of Capitalism in South Carolina by Dr. Justine Hill Edwards. Um, and I always encourage our listeners to become readers and go pick up the book. You will certainly love reading this. So we have this great book in front of us. Um, what might we expect from you in the future? And, you know, this book just came out this month. There's still sort of a global pandemic going on. And so if you just want to say I'm taking a much needed break, that would be completely fine. (laughs) Oh, my family would love to hear that. Yes. Um, well, I mean, you know, as a working historian, we're always thinking about the next project and, and, and topics and projects that kind of lure us to one direction or, or, or another. But um, the next project is actually underway. I'm starting research on a book about the Freedmen's Bank. And so many of the kind of questions that I continue to have about the relationship between kind of slavery, capitalism, and race really coalesce in this period of reconstruction. And so I'm thinking 
about how to use the kind of fraught history of the Freedmen's Bank as a way to understand the great promise, but the ultimate failure of Reconstruction. All right. Well, I'm sure once you have that book out, we will have you right back onto the program immediately to speak about that. But in any case, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you so much, Derek. It's fun to chat with you.